You're listening to the Reclusive Blogger Interviews, and welcome to Episode 3 with opera singer and baritone Jonathan McCullough. I talk with Jonathan McCullough, who is a Grammy-nominated baritone, opera singer, and musical director. Jonathan recently premiered his production of Jonathan T. Little's Soldier Songs, which was produced by the Opera of Philadelphia. He will also make his Canadian directing debut this season with a program titled Emily, centered around works written by Emily Dickinson, co-created by conductor and pianist Christopher Allen. In our chat, we discuss his work as a baritone, his work as a musical director, and we also talk about his work with the National Children's Chorus and where he thinks the future of opera will be, and so much more. So let's dive in. I usually start out with the question, um, how, how you kind of, uh, started, how you kind of came to where you are now as, um, a creative and an artist and a singer and just kind of go a little bit into your background and just things like that. Yeah. Well, I, so I started, started off in, uh, a group called the Paulus Choristers, which then actually ended up turning into the National Children's Chorus. Uh, and so that's where I actually started um, singing for the first time in grade school. And then uh, as I was in high school, uh, I joined uh, an opera camp at LA Opera. So I did LA Opera's opera camp and then uh, Pacific Opera, which was in Orange County, which no longer exists. They did an opera camp as well. So that was the first time that I uh, had any introduction to opera. And that was the first time that someone said, Hey, you know, you can actually do this as a career. Um, and there are schools that you can go to, to do this. And I was like, really? Um, so that was my first introduction to opera and that, uh, led me to auditioning for all sorts of programs. And I ended up going to the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia for seven years to get my undergrad, grad and postgraduate degrees. And then, uh, was fortunate enough to start working across, um, Europe and America and UK. Um, I guess maybe kind of go back a little further. Um, well, when I was born, no, not that, not that far. <laughs> not that far. But, okay. Um, I guess maybe kind of as a, um, young child or early teen, was there anything in, in your childhood, um, that kind of maybe like a pivotal moment or an artist that you kind of looked up to? Um, yeah, I think, well, my grandpa uh, was Italian and uh, he wanted me to sing an Italian song. That was like a really big thing he just wanted. So so I ended up doing uh, an Italian song at um, a school talent show when I was in like sixth grade. And that was kind of a, actually a pivotal moment. Um, I was in the chorus at that point and now I was starting to really go, okay, I really like singing and I enjoy the experience of singing. Um. 
So let's say that was a pretty pivotal moment. The opera camp was a pretty pivotal moment um, in in my life journey and career because mm-hmm. uh, that was the first time that someone basically gave me the the go ahead and said, "This is something you can do." Um, so that was a very influential moment. And then I'd say, you know, growing up listening to classical music and opera, I, which I never really thought that I would be interested in. Um, I realized how cool it actually could be when you strip away the like stereotypical things that people usually associate with it. Um, Bryn Turfel is somebody that I've always just like loved his voice and followed his career. Um, I actually got to see him live in Paris last uh, this past summer for the first time. And it was just, I mean, an incredible experience to see him both act and sing and, and he was he was doing Scarpia and Tosca at Paris Opera, and it was just like kind of the culmination of years of of listening to him on YouTube and on Spotify, and and hearing him live for the first time. I was like, oh my god! Um, and I, I and uh, to kind of go back on what you said, because that was one of the questions I have. Um, for people that may kind of feel that opera is a bit um unapproachable um can you kind of go into some of the things that you might um say or i i guess what 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 were what are some of the artists that you would say are maybe more approachable for somebody that may not understand some of the mechanics of opera well, I think that what's good about opera is that you don't even need to understand the mechanics of things. I think the main thing that scare a lot scares a lot of people are, are the language barrier and saying like, "I don't speak Italian, I don't speak German." The thing is, these uh, these shows are universal themes that no matter who you are or what your background is, chances are there's something that you're going to relate to on a human level. Um, so that paired with both beautiful and dramatic and just I, I mean, kind of like you want to talk about like a bass drop, like classical music has some of the most like mic drop moments in music. Um, it's just that you got to give it a chance and you got to go. <laughs> and when you experience it, there's the other thing is that I think a lot of people go, I don't know what to wear. Uh, it doesn't matter. You can wear anything. It really is not as uh, as stuffy as people kind of conceive it to be and it's kind of just like you know it's like oh well there's that that one dish of food that i've never like really tried and then you try it and you're like wow this is actually amazing i can't believe i missed out on so many years of this because i had this preconceived notion about it try that food and maybe you find your new favorite food (laughs) you know um there's also a lot of modern operas that are in english there are a lot of older operas that are in english too but these are I mean, these are like Hollywood stories. They are jam-packed with with twists and turns uh, on the narrative level that 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 rival any Hollywood blockbuster. Um, and the soundtrack is being performed live and in person. So if you like those, uh, if you like going to the movies or you like going to live theater in general, and think about the power of uh, a movie soundtrack but that's coming from an orchestra pit right there as the people are singing into your face with these stories that are just incredible stories opera is actually quite exciting it's just i think it gets a uh this kind of unapproachable vibe where where 
mm-hmm. you just got to break that and just just give it a shot. So that would be my my advice is give it a try. Go to one of the ones that are like maybe a, a new modern thing mm-hmm. um, or one of the classics. Just ask, ask around. You can even ask Google, you know, what are the, the best operas for a first timer to see? And there are a lot of opera companies throughout the United States. Chances are there's one near you and chances are they're doing something soon. So I'd go check it out. And since you mentioned that, um, I guess I kind of want to ask you, this is actually one of my questions on here. Who are some of your favorite companies or, uh, I guess, uh, operas now that you feel um, people should check out or see? Or are you just like yourself? Um, so I've done a lot of work with Opera Philadelphia. They've mm-hmm. been uh, kind of spearheading the industry in creating new works. Um, they've been very instrumental in my career uh mm-hmm. as far as um new works as well they have a whole uh program that is devoted to nurturing composers that are alive and workshopping their works and turning them into operas that's where you see uh Missy Mazzoli who uh has a lot of big things coming up David T Little who I did soldier songs with mm-hmm. um uh Tyshawn Sori, who won a MacArthur Genius Award grant. I mean, like, this is where they give them that opportunity to, like, flex those muscles and say, hey, what do you want to write? Write it. And then from that has come, I mean, you know, maybe 15 new operas that have been added to the canon, um, all with varying topics, again, that are these universal human feelings that, that get people to become interested in opera in the first place. And I guess, since you mentioned that, um, I guess we can go in, we can now go into some of the work that you are doing now sure. and talk a bit and talk a bit about first um, soldier songs. And then I guess kind of your work, other work that you're doing now. So let's kind of talk about soldier songs and how that came to fruition. And I know that I, if I, if I'm correct, I don't want to um, say something that's not, Right. Yeah, but yeah. The way, yeah. Um, that was a reworking of um older of an older opera, and you put that into a, a cinematic form, and, and um so and I I found that um very interesting, and I just wanted to kind of know the difference between what I guess traditional opera and then what what kind of cinematic opera kind of does because. Um, yeah, I just kind of, let's start with all with that. Yeah. So soldier songs came out of, um, my wife works in mental health. Um, Mm -hmm. so I'm very interested in that and how that affects people. Uh, I had worked with David T. Little, who is a composer during Mm -hmm. our time at opera Philadelphia. I was a, an emerging artist and he was a composer in residence. So I did, um, some expert excerpts of his, uh, with opera Philadelphia. We got to meet each other. I really liked his style of music. Um, so I, I found that he had an opera that was a one person opera called soldier songs. Um, and I listened to it and I was like immediately taken with it. It's, it's not your typical opera in that, you know, it's, it has a varying amount of styles where everything from limp biscuit esque to like heavy metal rock, like David wanted to write his, he always says his like dream was like, I wanted to write, um, horror movie soundtracks. 
<laughs> and he's like a metalhead, you know? So mm-hmm. uh, he found his way into opera composing and it's just kind of like led to a, a really cool style of composition that uh, makes him very unique. So um, he wrote this opera, Soldier Songs, was basically chronic, uh, is the chronicle, uh, chronic, chronicalizes um, the one version of a veteran's narrative from childhood to uh, adulthood. So in the score, it goes from age six to 66. Um, so it starts off with, you know, I want to be a real American hero. And he has a GI Joe or something. And, and then the next one is, you know, he's a teenager playing uh, video games. And it's like, shoot the buttons, aim to kill, you know? And then uh, we go into the time where he's actually in service um, and then realizes that, uh, you know, real life in a tank is not quite the same as a video yeah, game. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have the elder who, uh, you know, I don't want to give things away, but, um, you know, has a very unique experience in his own right as far as what he's experienced. So what I learned a lot through researching about um veterans mental health is that PTSD is a common manifestation and how that manifests itself actually often is through uh dissociative episodes where it's quote you see yourself in a movie um so i thought it would be interesting to take uh the story instead of setting it over 66 years or 60 years rather to set it over about 2 days and have this be a dissociative episode where the elder the entire time is reliving his entire life. And he lives in a secluded trailer park just by himself, not really trusting anyone anymore. Um, And he sees his life kind of flash before his eyes from when he was a kid playing with GI Joe to when he was uh, playing video games to then his trailer turns into the tank that he was in combat with in. Um, and then we find him where he is currently. Uh, and that's how the opera ends in that state. So you see kind of the progression of how um, how quickly things can change in someone's mind. And that's kind of what I wanted to get across in making it a film. It actually, I originally conceived it to be a live production. Um, the idea being, uh, looking at it from a from a producer mindset, I said, you know, opera is an expensive art form. So how can we make it not expensive Um, yet still visually appealing and impactful? So I thought, all right, if this is set in a trailer park, all we really need is a trailer and like a table and a grill and like a, a, a turf grass thing. So I said, if we can make it so that the front yard of the trailer can be packed up into the trailer, and it travels with a couple practical lights. And then we can talk ahead of whatever to whatever venue we're going to and see what the lighting board is capable of. We can uh, actually pull into a theater in the morning, do a light focus and sound check in the afternoon, and then perform the show at night, and then get out of there and go to the next place. The idea being we could spread this message of mental health awareness and creating empathy and sympathy to what some veterans go through Mm -hmm. uh because i thought i understood ptsd i had no idea until i learned a lot more about it um 
And so my goal with this is, you know, I felt like, how can I help people in this field like like my wife does? Because I, I can't do what she does, right? But mm-hmm. my as an artist, I can at least spread the word yeah, about mental health, yeah. using my platform and, and spread the word of mental health awareness and at the very least create empathy and sympathy for people going through a situation yeah. different than your own. Yeah. Um, so originally it was a live show and then with it being right in the midst of COVID, like pre-vaccine, mm-hmm. um, we thought it would be safer to do as a film, which ended up uh, being, that was the choice of Opera Philadelphia. And I'm so glad that they did do that because um, it paid off because we were able to basically capture this thing and, and have it live on forever as opposed to it being, you know, five performances and then it's gone. Um, do you feel that you would do, um, that you wind up doing more work like that? Or do you feel that, cause, um, I'm trying to familiarize myself with more of this cause I find it fascinating. Or do you feel that other people in your work will do more like that? And, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's my first well, question. I mean, I think that, especially in this, not that we're post pandemic per se, but like no. in, in this, in this current world, um, I think that the the trend is going to be a lot more artist driven work that mm-hmm. people are passionate about. I teach a, a lecture called Marketing Yourself as a Twenty First Century Musician that I basically go, Okay, so you as an artist have much more of a voice than than you might realize. And I say, What is you love singing, obviously. You're here because you love singing. But what else do you love? And I had one person say like, oh, I'm interested. I love trains. I was like, okay, so what if we combined those interests and you found an opera set on a train and then you talk to a composer friend of yours because this whole industry, this music business is all built upon connections and who knows who and like friendships and just like any industry, really. Mm -hmm. So if you say, all right, here's a composer friend of mine who also happens to love trains, like fill in the blank, whatever, right? Um. And you put together a show and then you say the why what the one reason that someone would maybe say no to an idea is usually money. So yeah. how do you find a way to make that idea less expensive? Because my idea like with soldier songs, the the set and the costumes cost an average of like it's like five thousand dollars. When your typical opera set is close to like anywhere from a hundred thousand to like seven hundred thousand dollars for the set, depending on how elaborate it is, right? Um so if we can get rid of if we can find a way over that hurdle the possibility of you getting your vision done is a lot more likely so in this in this class lecture that i teach i basically try to uh help people find like what it is that they could start talking about that they're really passionate about um because also if you're passionate about something your drive is going to be like 10 times more so going forward yeah. than than if it's something that you're assigned to and uh so i i really want to kind of uh and then i te- i teach them basically how to put together a pitch deck you say this is how to organize your thoughts because no one can see it as clearly as you do in your head my thing with soldier song started off as a sticky note with a stick figure and i i saw the final version of my head from that sticky note but obviously it's very hard to show someone a sticky note and be like this is going to be really yeah. cool trust me yeah. <laughs> Um, so then I talk about how to, how to 
organize those thoughts, put them down on paper. You talk to your team. Uh, you get feedback. You change things up a little bit so you have an outside perspective. And then you can start um, clearly talking about what you want to try to pitch to companies. And um, I guess um, I kind of want to go into more about your work um, as a director with Opera. And I know you uh, you did a program with, I'm not even going to try to say the name because it's in, uh, in French, but you did a work, a program work uh, with using Emily Dickinson, Dickinson uh, poems that. I yes, that's actually coming. That's coming up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's at, at Opera de Montreal um, yes, on April fifth. That's the one that I I. Find. Yeah. The the uh, the Atelier Lyrique is doing um, uh, this program. So uh, a friend of mine named Christopher Allen, who's a uh, brilliant conductor and also happens to be a brilliant pianist, um, we co-created this show about Emily Dickinson using uh, song cycles that already existed. So there's an Aaron Copeland song cycle, who's this famous composer, and he set music to Emily Dickinson poetry. And then there's another famous composer who is uh, still alive named Ricky Ian Gordon, who also said, you know, Emily Dickinson poetry, I'm going to set this to music. And these are two brilliant song cycles. So what we do is we kind of say, all right, this is a little bit of like what Emily Dickinson's life was kind of like. And all of a sudden we say, well, let's have a instead of just having a concert where you stand in the crook of the piano, mm -hmm. let's put, you know, a desk, a lamp, a chair and stage it so that we can actually kind of see the audience gets a sense of this is what Emily Dickinson's life was kind of like. She lived a very secluded lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was, it was basically her in her room. Just right. At a desk. And that's what yeah. this whole thing is basically set at Emily Dickinson at her desk mm -hmm. um and then people come in and out of her life and and those are the other other characters in in the song cycle. but they each person basically just sings these songs throughout the song cycle and we weave them together staging wise so that you see a narrative of what emily dickinson uh maybe saw her life could have been what it actually mm -hmm. was what she was thinking about at the time there's a lot of stuff about nature there's a lot of stuff about death um, and how she contemplated these things. So that's um, something that we are doing again. That's something that, like I talk about in my lecture, I say, all right, well, here's a, a creative, like we could just do a concert of those songs standing at the piano and there would be nothing wrong with that. Like that's a totally viable option. But for the price of a desk, a chair and a lamp, and then we add some lighting that's already going to be in the, in the space, uh, you now have a full extra show added onto the season um, that really just cost the price of a desk and a chair and a lamp. It's added. It's like added atmosphere and it kind of, exactly. it's a whole, whole mood and a whole aesthetic, especially if you know anything about Emily Dickinson mm -hmm. and, and her, her life, then it really kind of adds to the whole, I guess, it adds to the whole sonic atmosphere as with the music and everything. Yeah. I kind of think of like, so I, I'm also fascinated with, with film obviously. And what's interesting is like, you know, on your typical movie, it'll be shot. And then like, as they're shooting or towards the end of shooting, whatever they, they start getting in touch with composers. 
and they say, here's the film, here's the final cut or close to the final cut, add music to this. So it's like, you know, you have a big whooshing arm and it has to be like, and the music has to complement what's happening visually. I kind of work backwards as an opera director and I say, what's the music? And then I close my eyes and I go, what's the movie I'd want to see accompanied to this music? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how I work as far as when I'm directing things, what how I see it. And it plays itself out that way, um, which is what I did with Soldier Songs. I listened to it and I said, this is what I see happening here. And the visuals are driven by what's happening sonically. And to... Well, first, my first, well, I want to just kind of back up a bit because um, on the uh, the Emily Dickinson thing, uh, I first want to ask you, do you have a favorite poem of hers? And um, is there a specific poem that you feel just kind of fits the uh, type, the world at the moment? Because I know since you mentioned already um, she did speak a lot about nature and and a lot about, uh, I know, mortality. And I do know specifically now, and also I, I, you did also mention that um, with the soldier songs, that um, that was specifically on mental illness and everything. And I also think that with Emily Dickinson, there was a lot to do with I guess maybe with her, I, I, it's not so much speculating that she did kind of suffer from mental illness because she was in the room or just kind of stay within her room a lot. And mm-hmm. so I, that would be my my next question, my next two questions for you. Um, I mean, so it's it's interesting with her because like, you know, also mental health yeah. back then was a very different story than what it is yeah. today. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, um, being uh, female. Right, exactly. So it's like you know, it's uh, you know, in in the back in the day, a lot of times it was like, oh, ew, woman has hysteria, which like, yeah, I, I know. You know, like we're like, oh my god, there are so many things that were just like not handled right. correctly, but because they didn't know. Um. Yeah. Uh. So I mean, you know, there's things like uh, I felt a funeral in my brain is kind of interesting the way she talks about things there. Yeah. Um uh I'm trying to think. Um why do they shut me out of heaven is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh Heart, we will forget him. There's some interesting things maybe in, in what she was actually feeling as far as romantic interests. Um Yeah, she was clearly way ahead of her time. Yeah, exactly. And it's like yeah. that those are some of the things that we expect in the staging of this and and mm-hmm. you know we haven't actually I, you know i have a staging plan generally mapped out but we haven't worked once i meet the artist it'll also um probably change i think the thing is a director it's in what i what i like to do is is have a general idea but be adaptable to change um mm-hmm. given whatever context because like you know this singer may come on come in with a certain idea and I might be like, you know what, that is actually like wonderful. Let's run with that. Because being a singer myself, I know that I spend like an incredible amount of time on on my role or whatever it is. And I have a lot of ideas to bring to the table. And I think that the best result usually comes within sort of a collaboration. Of course, it's like, yep. you know, whenever I'm hired, if I'm hired to be a singer, 
I'm like, if the director wants to work in that way, great. If they don't want to work in that way, great. Like my job is to fulfill their um, vision of whatever it is that is. And I've worked with directors who are like, I want you to stand here and here and do this. And I'm like, great, let's do it. And then I've worked with other directors that are like, let's try this. What do you think here? And, and it, it, it changes. And there's not a right or wrong way to do it. Um, but I think the basic thing of being a, able to go with the flow a little bit and figure out in a rehearsal room uh, everyone's style so that you can get the best result. And I, you, I know that you mentioned, you just mentioned that you love film. What is it about um, films and I guess the art of filmmaking um, that you love so much? And is there a specific um, film soundtrack that you feel um, that you kind of maybe take inspiration from, I guess, when you're either directing and there, I, don't I won't say that there's like a film soundtrack per se that I take like inspiration from. It's mm -hmm. kind of like I listen to each piece and, and when I, if I'm thinking, cause I usually like to direct things that are musically set already. Cause like my mm -hmm. background is in focus in music. Um, so I usually go like, okay, this is this piece. And what can I do with this? Even if it's not even like, if I'm just casually listening to something, I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, I see this in my head. Um, and then I'll start going, all right, well, maybe let me put together a pitch deck for it and, and shop it around to some places. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the idea that with, with live versus film, I think that mm -hmm. both have unique things that one can do that the other can't. Um, on one hand, there's nothing like experiencing live theater with a group of people that you're all experiencing the same thing mm -hmm. at the same time, the energy that comes from that. But I'd say with film, you can get a sense of uh, intimacy that you can't get in a giant theater. Um, there's also just the, you know, close-ups. The fact that you can go from one world to another world in the blink of an eye, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to having like 15 people backstage move a giant wall and try to shape another thing in. <laughs> but yeah. so it's not, again, not that there's one that is better than the other. I think that both offer unique things that, that fill a, a, a need for audience members. Um, I'd just like to know more about when you were working with Renee Fleming, and I thought that was um, really awesome. Yeah, I mean, so that was part of um, the Carnegie Hall um, mm -hmm. song studio program that she runs. So mm -hmm. she uh, selected, I think it was like 15 of us, and then her whole thing that week was um, mm -hmm. teaching us to think outside of the box and say, like, Look, the the f art song in America is is a a hard sell. Just the way that the we grew up, right? In Germany, you go there and you walk down the street and the opera singers are like posted on giant billboards and there are lines wow. outside as mm -hmm. soon as the tickets are announced. People are standing in line for hours to try to get a ticket for a new production of something in 5 months from then. Um, that's just not like the culture in America. Yeah. Uh, I think that kind of stems from, um, from a, I mean, our, our government funded arts is a big part of it. So the arts being fully reliant upon individual giving is, is a big part of that. So there's not as much money to go around. Um, 
but I think it's how people are introduced to it from a young age, which is why uh, my work with Vail Opera Camp is so important to me and the National Children's Chorus. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's always this talk of audience acquisition and, and the audiences are dying out and we don't see the numbers coming in like we used to. And the audiences are like 70% full instead of 100% full. And it's like, how do we fix that? I think that the answer to that question is a long-term solution that's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to invest in youth and have them go to programs, you know, like Vail Opera Camp and and go to operas and and have opera companies give uh, uh have programs that are specifically meant for youth to get them interested and just like I said in the beginning of this talk, get them to the theater. Because like once they're in, chances are they're going to be fascinated. Um, yeah. So like at Vail Opera Camp, my my thing that I always say is like, look, if you do Vail Opera Camp, here's your chance to learn about opera, to learn about directing, to learn about conducting, to learn about acting, to learn about singing with an orchestra, putting on a full show. And as a byproduct, putting on an opera, you learn about teamwork, you learn about um, how to think creatively, how to think on the spot, um, how to uh, work within a team, all things that are skills that will be useful regardless of what an industry you end up going into. So like for me, when I did opera camp, that was the first time that someone told me, hey, you can do this. So that like one scenario, maybe we, we introduce the next Pavarotti to opera, right? Mm-hmm. On like the worst case scenario, which is not so bad at all, is we mm-hmm. get someone interested in opera and they become a future patron and lover of the arts. Like, that's yeah. the worst case scenario. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that that youth opera education is something that if if we want to see a strong future in the industry is something we can't afford not to invest in. Yeah, and I um to kind of add on to that, I also think at at times uh too here it's it, it's also exposure and also yeah. like you and, and also just access exposure um sometimes financial too yep. and, 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 and like that's part of only, like at Vail Opera we have a yeah. a uh, a robust scholarship uh fund mm-hmm. for students in need so like mm-hmm. we never want someone to not be able to go to the program because they can't afford. Like money will not be the issue as to why you cannot attend. Yeah. And um I since you uh mentioned the Vail Opera Camp, I know that you also are the program director at the National uh Children's uh course and I like to know more about that. Yeah, so the National Children's course was that was the course that I started in. It was just mm-hmm. called the Paulus Coursers at the time. Okay. Um so that's where I discovered my love of singing Mm -hmm. uh the national children's chorus started uh in los angeles and now has grown to um eight chapter cities uh throughout the country um and uh they actually just won a grammy last year um being part of gustavo dudamel's recording uh, for best um choral and orchestral i believe it was her best it was for a Mahler recording um so uh they just launched this opera program of which I'm the opera program director uh mm-hmm. where we run Vale Opera Camp which is a chance for kids to learn about all the aspects of opera and and get introduced mm-hmm. to it from an early age 
again, also being able to, if that is something they're interested in going into, give them a step up, uh, a, a step ahead of the game so that by the time they go to college and are getting ready to audition, they're like, I've been in three operas already before they even go to college. Or I've had podium time in rehearsal as an opera conductor at age 16, which is unheard of. Mm-hmm. Now we do this in a way that it's, you know, under mentorship and guidance. And so if it, it can really be a learn by doing atmosphere, which is something that I learned at Curtis, I learned by doing my first year, I was thrown mm-hmm. on stage in October in a lead role. And it was like, here you go, go do it. <laughs> and that's how I ended up doing We did four operas a year for seven years. So by the time I left school, I had actually already performed a lot of the repertoire that I ended up doing in my career as I'm still doing, mm-hmm. as opposed to it being the first time, like the first time I did count in Marriage of Figaro was at school. So the time that I did it at English National Opera, it was my, you know, fifth time performing the role as opposed to like, it's my first one. Oh my God. Um, so we basically want to give students that chance to uh, get real world experience um, so that they can learn about, you know, stagecraft and acting and even prop design. Um, so they get a really well-rounded um, education in that time period and then can decide what they want to do. And if they, again, like if they don't choose to go into opera, then they still have learned all these skills that you get from putting on a show and and, and the teamwork and the, the uh, working together and problem solving, all things that will help in other fields. So um, we... We have this, uh, the, the National Children's Chorus, and then in Vail, Colorado, each summer this year, it's from August 1st to August 10th, we're doing a show called The Tinker of Tivoli, which was a show that I actually did myself when I was in opera camp when I was 16 years old. And it takes music uh, by Rossini from like Barbara Seville and Cenerentola, Cinderella, and puts it into um, the story of... Uh, the Gallant Tailor by the Brothers Grimm. So we have basically kind of like a fairy tale that's hilarious, set to the music of Rossini, but in a way that teenagers can sing it. Um, so it's really like giving them all those tools in one in one spot. Um, and I guess I want to ask you more about how... Um performing opera for you personally mm-hmm. and has um I wanted to know more about some of your earlier times when you were just learning to perform it and how that was fun for you and things like that. that's what I kind of want to know more about and uh what has kind of been the most rewarding um experience for you so far and um and I just kind of more about your voice because I know you're a baritone but I'm not quite um sure the technical aspects of that but um and just kind of what are your favorite um uh favorite operas to perform and and just more more aspects of that um part of your career yeah so i mean curtis uh curtis institute of music had a big impact on me as far as that goes um i'd say one of the most memorable experiences i had there was performing uh, the role of Dr. Atomic in Dr. Atomic, which is uh, the story of the Manhattan Project. So I was 
J. Robert Oppenheimer. Um, and that was uh, a pretty big, like, k- pivotal moment in my career where I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, mm-hmm. I really love modern music. I love interpreting things in a way that is not your, it, it, it was not set in a Manhattan Project-esque look aesthetically. Mm-hmm. I loved that. Um, that was a that was the last thing I did before I went off to uh, sing in Europe. I did some shows at Komische Oper Berlin, Opera de Lausanne in, in Switzerland. And, and that was kind of like the thing that was my send off from from Curtis, which was like, OK, here's a, a big lead role that took me like, you know, a year to to prepare. Um, and that really was like. It was kind of like my senior thesis, basically. <laughs> right. Um, that's it's it's a little un, uh, non-traditional, but um, that's really what was most pivotal in saying you're now able to go out and, and do this um, in the real world. Because what Curtis did was it set it up so that the school environment mirrored the real world environment mm-hmm. so that that transition was quite smooth, not a culture shock in like going yeah, oh this yeah. is a different this is a totally different thing than school it was it was actually pretty much the same as school because the yeah. school ran it like a professional company which is how i'm modeling Vale opera camp after the curtis way of doing things because that's where i received my education and that's uh this learn by doing atmosphere that i really want to cultivate and um i guess you kind of already mentioned that but i would uh what advice would you give to anybody that is wants to go into this profession, whether uh, they're a musical director or um, a singer or performer, any aspect to this um, profession? I'd say, well, it depends on age, right? Okay. Um, it's not too late, depending on any, no matter the age, right? It's just what path mm-hmm. do you take at what age? Um, if it's high school or or even younger, um, come to a pro- program like Vale Opera Camp. Come, come, <laughs> let us come, let us show you the ropes and and experience what putting an opera is on putting an opera on is like. Um, uh, the other piece of advice I'd say is go see as much as possible. Mm. Um, from different places. Uh, some of the most inspired that I've ever felt was being in Berlin and seeing uh, shows multiple times a week at three different opera houses, all within a mile of each other that are three of the biggest opera houses in the world. I mean, they're, they're all three of them are, there's the Deutsche Oper Berlin, Komische Oper Berlin, and Staatsoper Berlin. Those three houses produce world-class productions all of really varying style types of repertoire and types of direction. Um, Go see as much theater as you can literally just go out and see as much as you can absorb as much as you can. Um, I mean, that's where I end up getting a lot of my ideas is just seeing something and going like, you know what, this would be a good idea for the, I went to go see that Van Gogh exhibit, the immersive Van Gogh thing. Oh, I went to see that as well. Yeah. I I love that because uh, Van Gogh uh, is like, well, Van Gogh is literally one of the biggest inspirations for me as an artist and a, mm. a photographer. Mm-hmm. So I, I, as soon as that opened up, I was like there. 
right exactly and i was like i was like in that big room with the projections going Mm -hmm. i was seeing the letters being written i said you know what'd be really cool is if there was a song cycle where the text was um his letters to his brother i was like that seeing that exhibit kind of got me thinking about that Mm -hmm. i go to the gift shop turns out it already existed it was on sale there (laughs) and then that composer actually um uh just by happenstance because it's a very small industry was yeah. the composer of the opera at that we did last year at opera camp. So I started talking mm-hmm. about it and I said, you know, I actually had this idea. And then I heard your song cycle. I had the idea for this thing that you did 10 years ago. <laughs> so I was a little 10 years too late, but it let me know that I was on the right track. Um, uh, but then I was like, you know what? We should look about making this into a film. So then we put together a film deck and we're pitching that around. Um, Cause, and that's how these things just kind of get going. It's because I went to go see one thing. It sparked an idea for another thing, which sparked an idea for another thing and so on and so forth. And then I'd say that's my biggest piece of advice is go out and see as much as you can. Um, yeah. And then to, uh, and then also since you mentioned Van Gogh, I think another thing too is that um, just because you do one type of uh, art doesn't mean that you can't, uh, absorb another type of art because i'm like i mainly just oh yeah no i mean like i've seen some weird plays in like the back alleys of london that i was like this is really cool and something that like a friend took me to that i never would have thought i would go to Mm -hmm. yeah because a lot of my inspirations tend to come from like as i said van gogh and a lot of them come from music but I don't, I don't really do, I don't really do music or in creative. And that's the thing about music, especially is you don't need to know anything about it to enjoy it. And most art, pretty much all art, actually, you don't actually need to know anything about it to enjoy it, which is what's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Yeah. And uh, cause I, I'm, I'm a photographer and I'm a writer and I do the podcast, but um, I tend to find most of my inspirations from other artists and, but yeah, that Van Gogh, it was, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. He's been, I have a big Van Gogh poster on my, uh, on my wall in my bedroom. Cause oh, nice. yeah, he's, I don't know. It's just something about his art and how vivid it is. Mm-hmm. I just, it, I, it, I don't know what he was thinking back then, but it's just kind of sad that he never got his due when he was alive. Right. I mean, and it's, uh, I think I'll, imagine how many artists mm-hmm. uh like that have probably been around that yeah. that were either never given a chance during their lives and after their lives so it's kind yeah. of like you know when you think about like the universe and how expansive that is like i bet you the same kind of thing exists when as far as like thinking about how many artists are out there that have created just museum worthy stuff yeah. that we yeah. may never know yeah, I to be honest, I try not to think about that. Because <laughs> yeah. There's so many, so many. But then the but the I, point being, though, go out and support some local artists, yeah. and go uh-huh. out and see as much as you can. And yeah. what what if you were the one that discovers them? Like I just saw this band. Uh, I certainly did not discover them, but I just I just um heard about them for the first time called the Scarlet Opera. Like I started listening to them yesterday. They are fantastic. And I am like obsessed. <laughs> um, and they were, they were just on the late show with James Corden the other day. Oh yeah. 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 Um, uh-huh. And, and I'm like, 
I've listened to those three songs that they have on Spotify on repeat and I'm waiting for some more stuff to come out. And, uh, you know, being, being there at like, you know, this isn't necessarily the beginning of their journey, but like, but, uh, I get excited telling people about, so like, you know, we've never met, but I'm telling you about this band and you should check them out. I have no, I don't know them. I don't know them personally, but like, but like I texted like 10 of my friends said, have you heard these people? <laughs> like check this band out. And just that form of excitement and, and, and experiencing art for the first time. It's like, you know, when somebody, mm-hmm. uh, when you're like, Oh, you haven't seen that movie. Oh, I'm so jealous. You get to experience for that for the first time. Um, going out and seeing new art, uh, is yeah. one of the most satisfying experiences that there are. Yeah. And, and with my podcast and my blog, that's literally all I started it for was to just be like, cause I, there's so many artists and, and bands Yep. And that I love, but I just realized um, I need to do more than just. I mean, you're you know, doing it right now, friends. basically using your yeah. platform to show yeah. uh-huh. people like, hey, here's something you never maybe would have thought about, but check it out. Uh-huh. So, yeah. I mean, so yeah. thank you for doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I the amount of people that I had telling me that I'm like, uh, I just like this artist or whoever. <laughs> and it's kind of grown to uh, something that I I never actually would have dreamed of. Yeah. Um. So I guess I I want to ask you a few. Uh, I guess since we're on, we're on art, a few fun questions. Um, you kind of already answered one, which was the Scarlet Opera. But mm-hmm. um, do you have any more? I guess uh, mus- musicians or maybe some podcasts that you've been just kind of listening to lately. Um. Yes, I love uh, listening to um, Greta Van Fleet. Greta Van oh. Fleet. Uh, yes, I love listening to Greta Van Fleet. The Scarlet Opera is a new band that I've just discovered, and I love listening to them. Um, Moinskin is a band I really like. Uh, oh, I love them. I, yeah. I, yeah, I've seen them live. They're amazing. I've oh, really? Oh, my God. See, yeah, I really want to see them live. Uh, Glenn Hansard, yeah. I love listening to. So I, I I listen to a lot of different style stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. um, my first love was like rock, and mm-hmm. uh, I also really love um acoustic folky kind of stuff. So that's that's what I listen to mostly in my free time. Uh yeah, I I went from uh being like a pop kid from a little bit. Like I was really really into NSYNC for for like from when I was 12, 11, 12, and then I just made like this drastic transition <laughs> from NSYNC to where I was just heavy into rock music from mm-hmm. uh a teen and then, uh, yeah, that's what I grew up on as a teenager was a lot of rock music, like MCR, AFI, yep. 30 Seconds to Mars, a lot of that stuff. And I, st- I still listen to a lot. Mo- rock is where I kind of grew up on. Yeah, I'm, my, 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 dad, uh, my, my dad introduced me like James Brown. So I would listen to James Brown going to kindergarten. <laughs> and and uh then he introduced me to like the who and the stones and that kind of stuff. So that that's where my musical interest kind of like started. And then it somehow veered off into opera, but they're both like, they both have a flair for the dramatics. You know what I mean? <laughs> what is your um, earliest musical memory? Uh, my earliest musical memory is probably listening to James Brown on the way to school as a little kid. 
in the backseat. That's cool. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I know. um, I think my my I got a lot of a lot of the um, R and B music and soul and stuff I got from uh, my grandparents and my mom. They listened to that Mm -hmm. and and stuff. And yeah, because I my mom told me this really cool story where when she was little and uh, she got to see. it was a guy that it was the artist that sings "Hit the Road, Jack," and for some reason, Ray Charles. Yeah, Ray Charles. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Ray Charles front row when she was like five. Oh my he goodness! Did a performance on uh, uh, my grandpa when he worked at college, at a college campus. So he did like a college campus performance. Oh wow! And so, uh, and I was like, that's insane. But yeah, she was just front row there. Wow. Insane. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Uh question is how do you see opera shifting in the next five or ten years? And uh yeah, where do you see yourself in the next five or so years? Um yeah, I think that opera is really gonna become have have this uh industry shift of artist driven projects. Um I think that's gonna be a a big thing in the next five, 10 years is kind of what I am predicting. Um, slash is already happening. People like mm-hmm. Anthony Roth Costanzo and Julia Bullock who are two brilliant artists. Um, they are the creative forces behind a lot of their projects. Um, I would love to keep singing. Um, I'd love to keep directing. Um, I see my position with this, uh, with the National Children's Chorus as the opera program director, um, we're looking to grow this program to to be able to give youth opera education to as many people as possible. Um, and that's something I really want to grow over the next five to ten years, and basically make it so that we can uh, give opportunities to as many young people who are interested in going into performing as possible. Uh, well, awesome. That's uh, that is what I hope happens because I'm always for more uh different types of music being as accessible to more people. And, yeah. And um, yeah. Thank well, you. If you're if you're interested in following more, follow us at uh, at Vale Opera Camp. That's my official plug. Follow us at at Vale Opera Camp on Instagram. <laughs> Great. Okay. Once again, you have been listening to the Reclusive Blogger interviews. See you in the next episode.